0: podcasting time welcome to just another jerk dispatches from japan a podcast about japan appropriately enough i'm your host jonathan isaacson and you're not remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever it is you fetch your podcasts from be it apple google spotify stitcher please remember to rate review and share the podcast as well so today is our next class period of Japanese History 101. Last time, I got us from the prehistoric times up to 1192 of the common Era, the start of the Kamakura Shogunate. And before we go on, I want to touch on a couple of things I left out. Last time, I skipped through the early days of actual recorded history of Japan. Uh, I mean, it's kind of hard, you know, covering that many that many years of history in a short time. You're going to miss things, and I'll come back and get those now. One of those things I want to mention is the Kofun Era, so, in the third century of the common era, the people of Japan started building these elaborate burial mounds, which are known in Japanese as kofun. This behavior went on for a couple, three, four hundred years or so. I talked a little bit more about it in the Himiko episode, so if I won't go into a lot of detail here, but around Nara, Kyoto, that kind of area down in western Japan, there are all these huge really elaborate burial mounds, and they're often keyhole-shaped. The biggest ones were, of course, reserved for people that were the, you know, the elite of society, including emperors and empresses. But you can find kofun of varying size all over Japan, including in Saitama, where I used to live. There was one less than a kilometer from our apartment, actually. It was a very small one, but yeah, there was one very, very close to our apartment. Overall, Um, There are over 161,000 identified Kofun spread from the Kanto area all the way out to far, far western Japan. Not so much up in the north, but we can talk about that later. Um, Another important thing that happened in the early days of Japan as a country was the introduction of Buddhism in the 6th century. Now, of course, Buddhism has its roots in India, but Japanese Buddhism came from the Korean peninsula, which had turn, had in turn come through uh, China. So Japan is, to this day, kind of a Buddhist country, but Buddhism, it plays a much more of a background role here than in places like Southeast Asia. So if you go places like Thailand, um, even parts like Vietnam, even to a certain extent, but a lot of countries in Southeast Asia, Buddhism is a much bigger part of life. In Japan, it's kind of this background thing. Most people in Japan, they follow Buddhist rites for things like funerals. And there's also this... Well, Japan also has a native Japanese animist religion called Shinto, which you might have seen. Um, The red torii gates, those red gates you see in the pictures of Japan, those are called torii. And that's that's from Shinto, the, the way of the gods. And So yeah, that's also in Japan. So Japan kind of has these two, they don't really compete with each other, but these two religions kind of, we can, well, we can discuss is Buddhism a religion, but most people call it a religion. We'll just call it a religion. Japan has these two kind of dual religions kind of that go on for most people. But yeah, Buddhism, it's been here in Japan for about 1500 years. But it doesn't, like I say, it doesn't really play a central role in the lives of most people, I think, is a fair way to say it. It's kind of this background thing, and then, like I say, funerals. One more thing that's worth mentioning from the early days of Japan is um, the term heian Kyoto. Now, that's the old name for Kyoto. Now, which, by the way, this is something I'm just going to help you here, so you say the name of the city properly. It's not Kyoto. That's what everyone says when they talk about the Kyoto Protocols. It's not the Kyoto Protocol. It's the Kyoto Protocol. There's no E sound. Kyo, Kyo. Kyo in Japanese means capital. And that's why both Kyoto and Tokyo have the Kyo sound in the names. You know, and that's also why the old name of Kyoto includes Kyo, right? Heian Kyo. Kyo just means capital. Tokyo means the eastern capital. But... We can talk about that again later as well, because we're not going to get that far in today's episode either. But anyway, um, yeah, Heiankyo was the capital of Japan starting in 794, and it continued well until 1868, and we'll say we'll get to that in another episode, not going to happen today, but we'll get there eventually. Heian is a term you'll hear a lot when you study early Japanese history because it was the capital way back in the day, and it was modeled after the capital of China at the time. Now, there's a lot of imitation of China, which, of course, was the superpower of East Asia at the time, and, frankly, for most of East Asian history. So, as I said last time, it was during this period that the emperor and his court were kind of growing more and more out of touch with the outside world, and the military leaders were gaining more and more strength, which eventually leads us to the Minamoto clan and the Kamakura shogunate, which is kind of where we ended the last episode. So, in 1192, right, we talked about that. That's Minamoto no Yoritomo taking control as the military ruler of Japan for, you know, all intents and purposes, he's he's in charge now. Now, interestingly, some even might say ironically, and we, yeah, I think it fairly is. This probably is a decent use of the word ironically. After the death of Yoritomo, the, the, the Minamoto shoguns, like he was the first of the Minamoto shoguns, the Kamakura shogun. After his death, after Yoritomo's death, the Minamoto shoguns really, they weren't in power themselves. Um, Immediately following Yoritomo's death, his wife, um, Hojo Masako, she kind of took control. Now, the second shogun was her son. Well, all, the third shogun was also her, her, one of her sons. Um, but yeah, so the, she, her sons at the time when they were given the title of shogun, they were very young, and so Masako she exercised a lot of power over them. And other members of her family, the Hojo family, they kind of get installed as the, I think, I forget the term, regent, I think might be the name that the term is used for it, but they were kind of the ones actually pulling the strings behind the scenes. So the emperor was still nominally the head of state, but was actually two steps removed from the real power, right? Because you have the shogun who was in in power, but the shogun wasn't even really in power. You know, the, the Hojo family were the ones behind the scenes taking care of everything. So, anyway, the Kamakura Shogunate would go on for about 150 years, you know, with occasional attempts by various emperors and their supporters to reassert the control of the emperor. And all of those would fail and end in exile until 1333 when the emperor Go Daigo returned to Kyoto from exile. And we'll get to we'll come back to Go Daigo one more important event during the Kamakura period was the attempted Mongol invasions. So in 1274 and 1281, Kublai Khan, you know, the leader of the, of the, the Khanate at that point, you know, uh, Genghis Khan was, had, had been, was dead. Kublai, was Kublai his son? I forgot. I have to go back and check that. But Kublai is a relation of Genghis Khan, and he's, he's the great Khan now. And he had, at this point, conquered most of China and the Korean Peninsula, and two times attempted to invade Japan. All the samurai who, I could say, are there eventually, they're, they are, samurai are essentially Japan's answer to knights in Europe. All the samurai were mobilized to defend the country. Of course, this was very expensive, and so it's at, it was at great expense to the shogunate that all these samurai were mobilized. The Mongol invasions were stopped and they were aided by typhoons. Now, these typhoons were called divine winds, which in Japanese is kamikaze. That's where that term comes from. It comes from these typhoons that helped stop the Mongol invasion of Japan. And so that's where that term comes, kamikaze. That's where it comes from. It obviously got co-opted later in Japanese history. We can talk about that again later as well, but originally it was literally the God's wind that protected Japan from invasion, and Japan was not—it was never invaded until, well, the occupation um, after World War II. So, the shogunate basically depleted itself in defense against Kublai Khan's army, which meant that the shogun and the, the shogunate—they couldn't pay the samurai the promised wages for defending the country, which led to the samurai getting pissed at the shogunate. Not surprised. By this time. The shogunate's so weak, and the, the, the samurai are not really, you know, they're not, they're not backing the, the shogun anymore. And so by the time Go Daigo, the emperor I mentioned earlier, he returns in 1333 from exile for a previous attempt at overthrowing the shogunate. But he comes back the second time, he was able to end the rule of the Kamakura shoguns, and he established what became known as the Kenmu Restoration. Godaigo was the emperor, and he wanted his power back, so he came and he took it. He was actually looking to set himself up as the most powerful man in all of East Asia. I mean, something that honestly wasn't probably going to happen, what with China, right next door and all, but, you know, still, he was ambitious. Unfortunately, he wasn't a very skilled ruler, and very quickly his support eroded within the samurai class, and so his power really only lasted until 1336. And that's where the Ashikaga clan comes in. So the Ashikaga clan were descendants of a uh, line of the Seiwa Genji, which is Genji, remember we talked about that's, uh, that's part of the Minamoto family. So yeah, all the major players in history at this point are related to each other in one way or another, and they all have some sort of connection to the actual imperial family. So anyway, the Ashikaga family sets up shop with their own emperor, and so Japan has this period of about 50 years where there's two emperors. There's the southern court, which is Godaigo and his supporters, and then there's the northern court, which is basically just a puppet emperor for the Ashikaga family. And there's a lot of ideological infighting and, and, and fighting, not, not I guess not wouldn't be infighting because they, they oppose each other, they're not part of the same group, um, but there's a lot of ideological fighting between the two courts. And in 1338, Ashikaga was appointed, you guessed it, shogun. Well, one of the Ashikagas, I should say. So, that's the beginning of the next shogunate, which is usually known as the Muromachi shogunate. Um, you'll sometimes see Ashikaga shogunate as well. They're the same thing. So, Muromachi, Ashikaga, they're the same thing when we're talking about shoguns. Now, the northern-southern court thing, it eventually ended with the northern court. the, the one that They're the puppets of the Ashikaga family. They went out in 1392, but interestingly enough, like historians and you know the uh, royal, what is it, the imperial household agency, they don't recognize those as being legitimate emperors. They're pretenders to the throne because they weren't the, the actual line of emperors, is Godaiko and his, his descendants. So that's the beginning of the Muromachi period of Japanese history. Now, the Muromachi period, which is named for the location of the Ashikaga Palace in Kyoto, It was a period when a lot of what is considered like kind of traditional Japanese culture developed. You know, things like no, the the very very, uh, stylistic Japanese theater form, um, tea ceremony, ikebana, which is the art of flower arranging, and a whole host of other arts and, and things. They really flourished during the Muromachi period. And it was a period of relative openness in Japan, Um, There was, of course, trade with the Chinese imperial court and, you know, the various kingdoms on the Korean peninsula. And it was late in the Muromachi period when the Europeans first kind of show up in Japan. Now, the Portuguese landed um, on an island kind of south of the main Japanese islands in 1543, and they introduced matchlock guns to Japan. And a few years later, Francis Xavier, yes, that Francis Xavier, the co-founder of the Jesuits, Francis Xavier shows up in Japan in 1549. Now Christianity was viewed very differently by differing right, by the different daimyo, and there's that word I mentioned the first ki- first episode. Um, daimyo, they're the kind of the lords of the various territories at this time. Like I said, they're kind of like a duke or an earl or maybe a duke of earl. No, they're not. They're not like the duke of earl. Anyway, so some daimyo saw the Christians as more or less kind of a harmless curiosity, and others were outright hostile to Christians, forbidding the citizens of their domain from converting upon penalty of death. Now, the latter group is probably more common and more representative of Japan's attitude at this time. Um, we'll get into that a little bit later, it's not going to be this episode, Um It's fair to say that Christianity never really caught on in Japan as it did in other places, I mean, even in East Asia. South Korea is a good example. South Korea today is about 30% Christian, if you combine Protestants and Catholics. Japan, by contrast, is only a little over 1%, maybe 2% Christian. And again, we'll talk briefly in a later episode about Christianity in Japan, because it it does play a minor role in Japan's history. More so if you live in a place like Nagasaki, but again, this is all for future. Just put that on the back burner for now. Europeans who are here in Japan, they were primarily concentrated in Kyushu, which is the southwesternmost of the big four islands of Japan. And the Europeans, they kind of stayed down there for most of history until much, much later. But yeah, like it, it was really it was during the Muromachi period when you know white dudes first entered Japan in any real numbers. Now the Ashikaga shoguns, they were never as strong as the Minamoto shoguns, even if the Kamakura shogunates, the, the Minamotos, were really being controlled by the Hojo's. But yeah, the Ashikaga Muromachi shogunate was never able to consolidate its control as well as the Kamakura shogunate. And the daimyo started to get restless and kind of started to go after each other's land and power and lower level samurais started rising up against their overlords. And by 1467, everything was, you know, getting out of control and the Onin War started. Basically, the Onin War started, it was a, it was a war over who would be the next shogun. And it turned into a 10-year civil war over land and power. But that was only the beginning. The Onin War effectively ended the Muromachi Shogunate's power and Japan would descend into this period of about 150 years of near constant civil war. Now this period is known in English as the Warring States Period. It borrows a term from uh, Chinese history. because China also has a Warring States Period. In Japan, like I say, it's 1467 until the early 1600s. And That's where we're going to end this episode today of everything you never wanted to know about Japanese history, the start of the Warring States period. So please make sure you subscribe wherever it is you get your podcasts. Make sure to rate it and give it a review if you're feeling really nice. And please share it with a friend or an enemy or a frenemy. They're all good. You can find the Twitter for this podcast at Just Another Cast, where you can get bite-sized nuggets of Japanese history over there on Twitter. There's also a Facebook page as well. Um, search for Just Another Jerk Podcast and like the page. You can get the history nuggets over there too. Um, send any emails to justanotherjerkpodcast at gmail.com. And always happy to get suggestions, requests, whatever's. Um, can't guarantee that I'll fulfill the requests, but I'll try if I if i can. I'm happy to get ideas for the show. On that note, I'm out. Peace.